0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the podcast. This is our ninth War Report episode focusing on the Russo-Ukrainian War. I'm having two guests on this episode. First, I'm having John from the Defense Bulletin. Many of you guys probably remember him. He was on uh, the last war report that we did, the eighth episode. And then I'm also having on Project Leaflet. I'm sure many of you are familiar with his work, whether it be on Instagram, Telegram, or elsewhere. He's been uh, covering the war a lot. He's had some pretty great coverage. So I'm glad to have both these gentlemen on and, and speak about what's been going on in the war in the past uh, couple months. I hope you guys really enjoy this episode. Uh, This is part of Northern Provisions, LLC, this podcast. Also, check out Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art, and culture. Take a look at the journal's bulletin from the Borderlands, a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to Lethal Minds Journal, dot sub or instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more also please consider supporting us on patreon that's at patreon.com slash analyze educate or you could buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash analyze educate that helps us out a lot and we appreciate any support that you guys send our way but with that being said we'll head into the episode Hey okay, everybody, I'm here with John from the Defense Bulletin. I'm also here with Chris from Project Leaflet. How's it going, gents?
1: It's great to be here.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, of course. Thank you for both for uh, being here. John, I've had you on a couple times. Uh, Chris, this is my first time having you on though, so you want to tell everybody who you are and what you do?
2: I am super excited. Um, you know, I've been trying to jump on here with you for a little bit. Uh, my name's Chris Naganuma. I work predominantly with uh hardhead veterans but most of you probably know me from Project Leaflet. I do combat photography and um, uh, journalism over in uh, Ukraine right now predominantly.
0: Okay and how'd you get uh, started doing that?
2: You know uh, kind of a, I guess a weird story. A lot of uh people I I had known from former wars either fighting over against ISIS or uh back in my early GWAT days, uh, we're cycled over and we're volunteering over in Ukraine. And uh I had worked in the defense industry and still do um for about 12 years now. And some of those guys were just kind of reaching out and making requests like, Hey, I can't get certain things over here. Can you can you help out with that? And so naturally, you know, help the boys, right? It's uh it's like if if they need something, you know, take care of them. And um that That ended up rotating into a larger thing of what we do today. Uh, But in regards to capturing stories, it was like, well, you know, hell, we're doing we're 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 taking care of these guys. Like I might as well bring a camera with me and start recording what's going on. And um, I started posting a lot of that on my personal page and my wife started getting pissed off about it. So I figured I should probably put it somewhere. Um, I thought Leaflet was always a great name for psyops and stuff like that. And that's kind of what we're doing here is is getting people to understand what's going on and um, what's happening to these people on the ground. and um, just been pushing it for a year and a half ever since. Okay. you have a you have a couple pages, right? You got project leaflet and then the other one's a daily leaflet, right? Yeah, so I try and keep them a little bit separate. Um, project leaflet is a really a lot of information, uh, video footage of what's happening on the ground. Uh, more. Um, I guess you could call it OSIN in intelligence um, and where the daily leaflet is a lot of the stories of people that are reaching out to us or contacts that I know personally and sitting down and doing a one-on-one about like, Hey, what are your experiences? What are you going through? And, and what has it been like?
0: Okay. And I know you uh, you're planning on going over there
2: at some point in
0: the future. What do you expect to
2: uh, do when you go over Yeah, so I've been over once already, planning on going back over, hopefully in the winter. Um, The goal is to either be uh, focused on embedding with combat troops. Uh, We have a couple of friends that are with the 59th and the 47th and a few other SSO and GRU units. Um, If that doesn't work out for us, um, we're hoping to do a couple of one-on-one presentations with, uh, with guys like Swampy that are prior or former EOD guys. And we're looking to build entire um I guess a docu story is regard. that the British guy yeah swampy's a good friend okay um, is he still over there yeah, so swampy's no longer um he doesn't he doesn't work on his team he passed his team over he was operational for a little over a year um what he's doing today is he's created an entire program for uh for teaching. And he goes around the world at this point, and uh, he's trying to bring a lot of what has happened over there and a lot of his understanding of EOD uh, to to current militaries and say, hey, this is what's going on right now. This is what we're seeing. And so I think a story on that is something that's extremely fascinating because of the the mine problem that's in Ukraine.
0: Yeah, they're going to be dealing with that mine issue for, for decades after this war is
2: over, you know, and that's uh, when it even does end. 700 years is the estimate to clear it currently jesus um yeah speaking on the ied
0: thing i know you've also kind of had the opportunity to take what you've seen over in ukraine and kind of give presentations and stuff like that to um the u.s military on occasion why don't you talk about that a little bit
2: We have that's kind of the goal uh, or one of the goals for Leaflet is to um, be able to go over and embed with some of these uh, teams that we've built really strong relationship and personable relationships with and take the information of the battlefield that we're seeing today, uh, bring that back into uh, presentations for our military and our current war fighters and uh, bring threats to them that they should be aware of you know, really like what's going on with the drone systems, Um, what's going on with armor and the changes that we're seeing in Ukraine, what are kind of some of the Western fighters, uh, how are they conducting warfare and how are they controlling company size units and things that we should be learning and um, really paying attention to as the the technology changes um, uh, on our side and and globally. Okay, how are those uh, presentations received? (laughs) Man, it's a, uh, you know, I try to put a lot of, I'll, I'll ask each unit kind of what their focus is. Like um, when we went out to speak with the Marine EOD, they were really focused on um, aquatic and air drones. And so we had put a lot of that footage into the presentation and built out based on their specification of what they wanted to see. And, you know, we had 50 individuals in our presentation, probably them all hire MCOs, in command. And a there's a lot of, uh, oh, my fucking gods, like, oh, shit, that's happening now. Um, I don't think that there, tr- I don't think that as many people are truly aware that, you know, you can take a, a 700000 or $700 drone and put explosives on it and, you know, detonate a $4 million tank very easily.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, looking at uh, the... You know, cost of a UAV comparing to, you know, your potential. Uh, I don't know, return on investment. I guess you could say it's pretty insane. And you could also use those, you know, to be like a forward observer and and stuff like that. It's like they have countless uh, applications. You could put them forth.
2: Yeah, it's it's fascinating to see how that technology is, has advanced um, over the last year. It's it's extremely fast. It's extremely useful. Uh, and it's extremely scary. Yeah, I think uh
0: you know, the next time that our military gets into a big conventional war uh yeah, it's it's going to be um a very interesting new environment for our military. Um it's it's not going to be like Iraq and Afghanistan where you got just roadside bombs you could kind of pick out with a little bit of patrolling training it's going to be a completely different environment
2: no and i I think a good a good a good comparison to that is that you know when this war started in ukraine the u.s sent a a good amount of switchblades over there and i'm sure most of us have seen them um you know they're a, a device that goes into a mortar tube and it and it fires off and then it, it turns into a loiter drone that has explosives on it. And those were sent to Ukraine in hopes of like kind of doing what, uh, the CODIS type drones or customer off the shelf supplied drones are, are doing today. The difference is that those, like those switchblades just weren't, you know, they weren't very effective. They don't fly as controllable as, as a, like a as a DGI, um, and a single Switchblade 300, they cost about $58,000 for an entire package. What? Really? They're not cheap. And that's not even, that's a small version. That's like considered an anti-personnel. When you go up to the 600, it's, it's a lot more expensive. Now, if you compare that to a, an FPV piloted drone that has a little bit of explosives on it, you know, Ukraine's building those for 700 to $1,500, and they fly extremely fast and turn on a dime. The pilot is watching visually what is happening on the very front end of the drone right between its rotors. And it's cost effective. You know, if you can build one of these for $700 where a switchblade is $58,000, that's about 80 drones for the cost of one of those switchblades. I mean, it makes sense to me of why you're seeing so much of these being used.
0: Yeah, are those effective against armor?
2: Depending on what you're using and the type of munition that you have. The, t- the kind of the three ways that they detonate armor is most of the Slavic type armor has to be used with open hatches when they're firing, whether it's the tank or the BMPs. And it's because a lot of them, well, they do have ability to blow out smoke, they get pretty gassy on the inside. And so a lot of the guys will open up their hatches to help ventilation. But because of that, if you drop a grenade on the inside, most of the tank systems are still using a rack autoloader. And so if a grenade detonates in it, you'll have a lot of secondary detonations and the tank is kaput. Um, So that's a very good cost effective, you know, (laughs) ROI, if you will, uh, a hand grenade for a tank. Um, If you if you use an FPV piloted drone, then they'll put explosives on the front of it or on the bottom. And then they use a wire initiated device that when the wires connect, the drone explodes and they'll try and fly those directly into uh, the hatches of the tank and get a secondary explosion. And some of the other ones, what they'll do is they'll also fly a uh, RPG or other type of um, uh, penetrator munition to impact the sides of the the armor and get a, a mobility kill or some other type of kill. We actually shared a video of that happening today on on the leaflet with a drone that had an RPG warhead on the bottom of it and just barely missed a tank. See, so
0: I I had no idea about uh, their armored vehicles kind of needing to have the hatches open when they fired. I I always thought that uh, they just always had their hatches open because it was like a bad habit.
2: No, yeah, we...
1: same here. I actually thought that was a, like that was just um, a, a bad like uh, procedural thing that they were
2: ignoring. Yeah. No, we're, we're pretty blessed in regards to like some of the things that, you know, our designers think about in, in the, in the West, let's, you know, we can button up and shoot and, and be relatively good. You know, you've got video footage of Abrams getting hit by ATGMs and it looks like all these, you know, the whole thing explodes and fire shooting everywhere, but all of a sudden a crew of three jumps out and they're completely okay. And it's because of the way that, you know, we store our ammunition in completely compartments and there's, there's safety shields and blast shields for the crews and the, the T, the T platforms like the eighties and the nineties and the seventies, they're, they're just not really developed like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I kind of want to get into this a little bit later when we, when we talk about what's going on with the counteroffensive, but even looking at Bradley's, for example, when you had that. Like heavily publicized, uh, like mechanized push yeah. through a Russian minefield. I mean, looking at the survivability of the Bradleys is is pretty crazy because, you know, those things hit mines and they got chewed up pretty good by uh, Russian attack helos. But it, it looks like Ukrainian troops in that column took some pretty minimal casualties, all things considered. I mean, most of those guys just jumped right out the back and got evacuated like it was nothing.
2: Yeah, uh, I think it's definitely something that we should touch on. Um, you know the, that's something that's been spoken about pretty highly from a good amount of Ukrainian troops in the 47th, which were the guys that were involved in that push. And um, you know, again, you know, we're very blessed in in the West in regards to the technology and how armor is developed and how these these vehicles are built. You know, I would much rather be in a Bradley that's in ods version from desert storm like we're not even talking about the a3s like these are like a2s that are going over there old old bradley's mm-hmm. and you're you speak with these guys and they're like you know if you if i was in a btr like i'd be fucking dead it's you know i just think they're very you know they appreciate obviously what is what is, what they're being allowed to use and that I couldn't imagine trying to push through some of the the objectives that they're trying to do right now. Yeah, well, I even know, like, uh, in
0: wars past, you know, looking at the Chechen wars or even the Soviet-Afghan war, um, a lot of Soviet troops, when they were attached to these APCs, it was, like, kind of just set up on the top, like, especially looking at BMP-1s and BMP-2s, yeah. because if they hit a mine and they were, like, actually sitting inside, they were, they were fucked. So they
2: would just sit up on top oh yeah unfortunately now that that type and you're seeing that still today i mean we uh, i think this morning at like 8 a.m i i shared a video of uh of a bt a btr2 getting ambushed by ukrainian forces and there's like 12 russians sitting on top and you know they're getting hit by anti-tank missiles and grenades and like small arms and you're just like fuck like fuck these dudes are fucked um but I don't I don't think, um, like to your point, I don't think the Russians have done a d- good job at changing tactics where you, Ukraine has. And I think you're going to see the survivability of some of their troops go up.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, branching off a little bit, we'll kind of get into the counteroffensive a little bit later, but I wanted you to talk a little bit about... Uh, what happened with you and this, this Track-A-Merc business? <laughs> uh, I, I know we, we just talked about it before we started recording. And again, like you say whatever you want, man, uh, if you're not really comfortable talking about it.
2: No, it's good. It's all good. Uh, you know, track is an interesting organization. They're on Telegram. They were on Twitter, but I, I think they got blocked now. And uh, so I guess just for, for people that don't know, what, what track a does is they are a I think they're they're based out of the Philippines, uh, but they're very pro-Russian and anyone that is a a Western supporter or someone from a Western country that goes to Ukraine. They try and uh, track them down, find as much personal information about them and um, create these outlandish stories and really just make their life kind of a, a hard time. And they had some really crazy followers, which is kind of the scarier part about it. Uh, I unfortunately got targeted um, when I was going to Ukraine and I was, um, you know, like I was telling you, I was, I was, uh, went over there and I was doing combat photography and I had the opportunity to work with an organization called task force 31. They're a really good training group. Uh, They've been working in Ukraine for, uh, well over a year and trained hundreds of Ukrainians, um, and what what I had the opportunity to do was come over and, and kind of talk with a group of um, Ukrainian fighters that were heading to Bakhmut in a couple of weeks um, and work with another Western trainer to give my insight on a few things and and just help share some knowledge and motivation for what these guys were about to go into. And some of those photos ended up getting out and I was again, I was wearing a fog hat or a Ford observation group hat. And so track and Merck immediately kind of said, Hey, uh, here's, here's Chris. Oh, look, he's wearing fog, uh, gear. So he must be obviously operational with Ford observation group. Um, now look, he's, he's training, uh, battalions of, of Ukrainians and they made my background like so outlandish. Like I was, like, I was like a company infantry commander and like, like had all these awards and, um, I, you know, I, I'm just a basic E5 in the infantry, man. That's all I was. And uh, that kind of got a lot of traction because a couple of days later, maybe some people remember, but there was a, a moment in time early in the war when a bunch of Russian soldiers were surrendering and, and uh one of the Russians at the very end jumps out with an AK and starts shooting at the Ukrainian troops. And one of the Ukrainian PKM gunners ends up, shooting a very large majority if not all of them and unfortunately for me that pkm gunner had a beard and looked very similar to myself uh and so trakemer grabbed those photos uh, along with the story that they had already previously done with me training connected the two and said well now look chris is operational and killing all of these russians that are surrendering and that got a lot of traction. Um, you know, that story uh, of the of the Ukrainian shooting the Russians got enough traction that that made it to New York Times. Um, they didn't name me, but a bunch of larger publications on YouTube and, and uh, other outlets did. Um, and so it kind of became <laughs> really kind of a problem um, for myself and uh and my wife wasn't too happy about hearing about it and so i had uh you know if you search my name and um, you look up SoFREP, there'll be a nice article about about it and me talking about it all and and um but it's it just goes to show you you know it's like if if you're looking to volunteer or or help over here um you know you you may get involved um or targeted by organizations did you ever get any you know corrections or retractions from any of those news agencies that that did name you no not a single one i actually responded on some of their youtube channels um with my personal emails from like my youtube accounts and i was like man like like you could i'm not hard to not hard to find um you know you could have just reached out and talked to me and some of this is like you know i like i have a legitimate press pass from the mod of ukraine you know i i i can't I i shouldn't be going out there and like shooting guys like it's not what I, it's not what I'm there to do and um it's just kind of uh it's just it's it's kind of crazy and so no I never ended up hearing anything about it and slowly you know that that story is like as many people's attention spans are is, is very short nowadays started to kind of burn out but, but I still get a, a decent amount of death threats um probably like monthly I'd, I'd say Is this I like uh, I like
0: when news story or news agencies will like put out a story on somebody specific, you know, like trying to uh, slander them or something like that. And they always put it down like, oh, uh, whoever, like didn't provide a comment, like when we asked him to or whatever. And then the person will come out like, oh, you guys never fucking asked me for a comment. Like never. All you have to do is email. No me.
2: one ever reached out to me like and to be honest like I I wasn't even really too nervous about the news agency stuff like yeah that that's getting the attention but if that continues to grow and like get more attention and more attention you know that in the long term that's only going to play in my benefit because you can go after for like defamation and stuff yeah the the scary part is you know where you're these these telegram pages have like you know, 50 to 100,000 followers, man. And yeah, they can post and say whatever the fuck they want, whether it's true or not, it's their page. But when you have that amount of followers, you know, it's, it is not hard to find people's information. And it's not hard to track down where you live, where you have lived in the past, just based upon your name, Um, on the internet today, if you don't do the due diligence to go and take that information off of the internet and reach out to companies that are holding your records that are public records. And so, you know, it only takes one of those guys to, to be a little bit crazy, right? And that I think is like the scariest part where you're seeing like 500 comments on a post that they made about you. And they're like, oh, well, he lives in X, Y, and Z why don't we go find where his wife shops and you're like okay well this is obviously now becoming a bigger problem Jesus man so it's just it's a weird situation and you just kind of have to be um you know aware of it yeah you uh you mentioned uh
0: fog too a little bit ago do you remember that story but I guess I shouldn't even say story because it was like from i can't remember what russian ministry it might have been the mod or, or somebody else was it the kremlin yeah they announced they, they that were a trans- mercenary
2: organization operating inside of kiev working <laughs> working and doing operational means yeah and they said uh
0: they're transporting chemical weapons to the yeah. front in the donbass yeah yep,
2: yeah. yeah none of that was true no uh fog is a combat photographer that's that's what they do um you know i don't i don't know if the the owner is um operational today or anything like that but uh, I, I can they're not a they're not blackwater parent that's not what they do
0: what a fucking weird world we live in then <laughs> yeah. well yeah
1: the chemical weapons seems to be the false flag go to for the Russians, it
0: seems so
2: yeah they're really big on the chemical weapons it Chris, was oh. What's up? All right. No, that was, but that was a big, um, you know, that was a big thing for a long time. Yeah. I, they,
0: they got some good pub publicity from it. So, uh, Oh, well, Chris, can you talk a little bit about, uh, some of the work you've been able to do in regards to like getting gear to units and stuff like that? I know it's kind of a, how would I describe it? It's, it's an interesting business.
2: Yeah, um, I think there's a I think people misunderstand sometimes when they see the numbers uh, mon- like the monetary numbers that are going over and, and then they see some of these teams that are like, well, why are these teams uh, self-funding or what's going on with that? And, you know, a lot of people forget also that uh, we self-funded um, for armor and, and night vision and lasers when we first went into Iraq as well you know some of you guys are are a little younger than i am but you know there was this armor called dragon skin that was all the fucking rage when gwat started and all of us were fundraising for it because it was the best armor that we could get at the time now you know some of these units over in ukraine based upon where they work and what they do it kind of works the same way where ukrainian military will be getting this equipment and supplies and and support But they have to kind of spread that out all through the Ukrainian military, the territorial defense, the SSO, the GRU, um, you know, the aviation field. And so depending on who's of more importance, that's kind of where that funding falls. And sometimes some of the Legion units or the TDF, which is where a majority of Western guys that are volunteering and other uh, country volunteers that are coming in, they usually start in the Legion or the TDF. And a lot of those units can kind of be maybe getting the, you know, the brunt end of funding. And so maybe they don't have the, the you know, a, an operational car that can kind of get them around or one of them's in the shop and they need to raise money for that uh, because uh, the big military just is not focused on them. Or maybe they're trying to get night vision for their guys because uh, that's a focus and both sides of this military are not fully outfitted with nods um, and they don't know how to get it. You know, and so there ended up being a lot of those requests uh, really from a lot of units. Um, And I think that's also because the Ukrainian military has been growing up a lot from 2014 to where it is to today. And so there's a lot of training uh, scars and and changes that are happening. You know, you're seeing a lot of Western military and Western equipment come in and a lot of uh, Slavic equipment starting to cycle out. And so guys are starting to get used to that. And how do you maintain that? And how do, how do things get, uh, you know, taken care of? And so what we did was we kind of came in and started fulfilling some of those requests. Some of them were very small, uh, you know, gloves, cold weather gear, socks. Um, can you get me ballistic clear glasses? Things like that, that are just, you know, very uh, small humanitarian needs. Some of them are larger, uh, and and those are kind of on case to case basis requests on on what happens, and that comes down to really kind of just understanding how to how to network with units and network and understand the flows of the way that gear has to move, whether it's from the United States. Well, you should probably understand how to work ITAR, have a company that knows how to move ITAR products, and make sure that all your product, uh, sorry, all your paperwork is correct, so that you're not getting screwed. Uh and that it's all accountable once it actually gets to the Ukrainian side. Um, sometimes if we can't source something on the US, then we, we work on the outside, meaning like the UK or, yeah, or EU. There's corporations with that build a uh, night vision out out that way. Act in black is a big uh, component with um nods that are cycling into Ukraine. Uh, you know, you see uh uh Denmark protection group guys have opted to buy armor from them because uh armor still is under ITAR in the United States. So it's easier for them to maybe get some armor from outside the United States. And so what we kind of do is we just try and help um I guess be fixers uh in regards to what can help make the life of the tr- the troop on the ground better. And can we do it more cost effective? Um can we get more equipment at a better price? Um, and can we make sure that that equipment that's getting in there can actually withstand, uh, the means of what they're about to put it through. And so that, that's kind of what we've been doing for the last year and a half. And that's where all these stories and and capturing the information has come from is because we really just started maintaining a lot of, uh, relationships with these people.
0: Okay. It really is, uh, honestly remarkable to see the network that, has grown around trying to get supplies to the Ukrainian military, you know, through like private means. One of my friends from high school, she's Ukrainian. She uh, grew up in Kiev and came over here when she was like a teenager, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of her family is still like over there and they've had to deal with the war and stuff. And ever since it began, like she's been doing like all this stuff to try and get, you know, night vision um get like medical supplies tourniquets and all that stuff to like various units and i think she actually has done work with um task force 31 interestingly enough i won't say who she worked with but it's a i don't know you might recognize him it's a gentleman he's a former marine infantry like decked out in tattoos like fucking head to toe um so yeah it's just a really small world um but it is interesting to see the network that has kind of grown around that.
2: It's a, I I just, I don't think, um, a good way of putting it is that I don't think the United States expected the insurgency that was going to happen when we entered into Iraq. I do not expect, I don't think Russia expected the insurgency that happened once they entered Ukraine. Meaning the amount of Western individuals that went there to fight the amount of global individuals that volunteered to come in to fight and the amount of Western supply through a proxy that came in to support those individuals, you know, it very quickly became a a very hard situation for Russia just based off that alone. Yeah, well,
0: I think I think Russia and, you know, even a lot of a lot of us over here thought Ukraine was going to fold within a matter of days, you know, I think even our own Oh yeah, uh, DOD estimated key would fall within 72 hours or something like that.
2: I have a uh I have a kid that I work with. Um I say kid, he's like he's like 23 or something like that. He's a he's probably more of an adult than I am today given the situation. And he does uh he's worked with us doing equipment drops uh for last year like helping out frontline units. And We spoke a couple of weeks ago and I'm I'm working on an interview with him and he's and he was like, I remember the first weeks where my neighbor had apparently he had told me that his neighbor's daughter had stayed behind and he had left to cross the border and he called back in as the invasion started and was like, just hang, hang low, everything will be over in a week, it'll be fine. And he was like packing his bags and was heading towards Poland. And he's like, this is fucking it. Like everything's going to fall. And I think a good amount of people ex- expected that. And there's a couple instances of why it, I think it didn't happen in a couple of areas of combat that really kind of helped hold back, um, and yeah, I just, I think, I think Russia really just expected to come in and roll through and it it was not ended up, it just, it just was not that that way.
0: Yeah, I know. Even, even when things started, I had the opportunity to talk to a couple people who were like making for the Polish border as things were going down, like once a missile started landing and stuff. And then my friend that I talked about earlier, I think uh, some of her family actually fled to, I think it's the Carpathians the mountain range that's over there. I think that's where they went, uh, you know, cause they thought that everything was going to fall within a
2: matter of days. I, I think they expected it to fall. Um, you know, there was a lot of Westerners that were up in the Northern areas uh, and that's what really kind of held back a lot of the Russian push. Um, But it's impressive to see where they are today based upon the size of military that they are the level of understanding of how to war and truly how long they've kind of been at this, you know, this war has been going on for a long time. If we truly want to go back and like, not just, it's not, it's not just a year and a half old, right? Like it's like, it's it's very old. Yeah. Almost 10 years. Oh yeah. And, but, uh, I don't know. I, I don't, Ukraine today is a much different Ukraine than it was when this war started. Yeah, absolutely. They've they've certainly
0: come leaps and bounds looking at where they were in uh in 2014 to now.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's arguable that if the Ukrainian armed forces, right, just to interject real quick, if they if the if they, the 2014 Ukrainian armed forces might would most likely have rolled over, I think we would have seen kind of what you guys were talking about. Um, you know, people expecting three days, seventy two hours. Made, I I would guarantee that would have happened. I think the Russians didn't necessarily account for the not only the Western aid and also the the crowdfunded aid like you were talking about, uh, Chris. But I, I just don't think they um understood to the extent to which the Ukrainian armed forces had evolved in the past since in the past uh, five to six years since two thousand fourteen. So
0: yeah and and i feel like even the ukrainian populace at large um i think there was a there's a legitimate argument that looking at uh you know late 2013 2014 ukrainian society was was divided you know especially between i guess russian speakers in the east and and sort of uh ukrainian speakers in the west um and, you know, that's obviously how you how you get the whole thing in the Donbass, right, with all the separatists. But since then, I feel like Ukrainian society has united a lot more just because they've had to deal with this constant threat from Russia and the separatists since, you know, 2014, 2015.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I remember remember we saw like, you know, you know, kind of like stay at home moms sometimes, you know, going to the grocery stores, you know, AK slung around there um on their backs, you know pushing a cart down the aisle in the grocery store, things like that. I mean, the Ukrainians were
2: ready to fight. Well, to your point on that, you know, I I, I think you're 100% correct. If they would have done the Crimea push and then just said, fuck it, we're going in, mm-hmm. that that would have been, that would have been it. You know, that Ukraine probably would have just rolled over and said, yeah, you know, we're, we're not, we are not prepared for this. We're not pre- like any of that. But you let these, you let the years go on and what a lot of people don't or I think don't understand is that as those years went on, Ukraine's, some of Ukraine's special operations teams were allowed to operate along NATO special operation teams, even though they were not inside of NATO. They were the only country to allowed to do that, and that's because they met Western standardization. That's one of the goals that you have to meet when you're entering acceptance into nato so if their special operation teams are now working that closely with western capabilities and they've been able to meet those standards of room clearing western handling using rockets and all that you fucked up at that point right because the the time frame now is extending too far you're you've like these dudes went into ukraine and expected to have like a week. White two weeks of of a war. Mm-hmm. Fuck, bro. The VDV was wiped out within the first couple of fucking days. I mean, like it it was like one. Of, it's the worst probably operational means of any air assault in any war I could probably think of. They have not won a single operation in this entire year and a half. The entire organization is gone. They used to be fucking an elite status. I, I don't. I, it's it's been terrible for them and. <laughs> It just blows my mind to be like, you You know, nothing. It. To, I guess it blows my mind to say that Russia had the, the same amount of time to advance themselves and prepare for this war that Ukraine has. And to see a country of that size go so much more advanced and prepare for it, um, it, it just speaks leaps and bounds, I think.
0: Yeah, and I and I yeah. think because Russia thought this thing was going to go over so smoothly and so quickly, they were so underprepared. Um, when it came to you know starting the actual invasion, I mean, just looking at the VDV, a lot of these guys didn't even didn't even know they were going into Ukraine. You look at the guys, uh, I think it was like the eleventh uh air Soll brigade, maybe the guys at Hostomel, there were ca- some of them were captured, and they said like, oh, we actually. We didn't even know we were in Ukraine until, like, you know, we were, like, fucking dropping over the airport, like we thought right. we were training in Crimea. Right. Um, and a lot of the guys, like, in the east and the Donbass, uh, you know, crossing to the border, they thought the same thing. And, I mean, Russia brought over 85% of its battalion tactical groups to, you know, the border with Ukraine, whether it be in Russia or Belarus or, you know, in the south in Crimea. And most of these guys had no idea what was going on. Like, it's it's amazing and even then like of course Russia's military uh-huh. is a is a tiered uh tiered readiness system right so when you're not officially in wartime which includes right now because it's a special military well, special operation. operation yeah yeah exactly they're not at war right now so um when the invasion began their readiness levels were at 70% because that's what they always are when they're not at wartime so you have units that are i mean purposefully heavily undermanned going into an, an invasion it's just a cluster
2: I, you know i understand that russia doesn't talk to like they don't run an they don't run a uh they don't really run a nco branch through their units right yeah So there's obviously lack of communications that's going on and they're waiting for like high level or, or officer command but You know, fine, you don't want to tell your guys where they're going or what they're assaulting into, but the bigger problem is that you also don't even try and control any of the the anti-air systems. I mean, if I remember correctly, they had what, two two VDV troop airport or airplanes that were shot out of the sky that had upwards of six hundred troops inside of them. I think the, and the, those were supposed to go to the airport when they were doing the assault on it to help to push. You know, you can't have helicopters being shot out of the air, troop transport airplanes being shot out of the air, and lose every single front that you put air assault units into. And exp- I, I don't know, man, like it, it was po- very poorly executed. I mean, very poorly executed. I couldn't imagine today watching 80% of the 82nd and 101st being wiped out. You you know what I mean? Like Yeah, no, absolutely.
0: Um and I think I think that ties a lot into sort of intelligence failures and and really just failures with uh the accuracy of their missiles at like I mean the very first hours of the invasion, you had these large-scale uh, like Iskander missile strikes on Ukrainian airfields and, and important military infrastructure, and those missiles, like, were so fucking inaccurate, dude. Looking at the airfields, I can't remember what specific airfield it was, but they showed satellite images of of the strikes. You know, a month or so after they happened, and they missed every single aircraft that was on that field. It was off by you know fifty to hundred feet for every every single target. Um, and that really screws you, right? If you're going to launch missiles in the beginning of the invasion to try and knock out their air power and their air defense and their military command, I mean, those kind of need to be accurate, right? Otherwise, you're just wasting missiles, which Russia doesn't have a lot of to begin with. They're not really big on precision guided munitions like we are in the West.
2: No, but to to that point, I think it also, you know, you look at and I, I guess the, the way I should explain this is that I think some of those munitions are not having the greatest accuracy based upon also how much money Russia spends on maintaining their munitions. Like, yes, you know, yeah, they have a lot of X, Y and Z. And for example, let's take the nuclear aspect of it. Yeah, they technically have the world's largest nuclear capability. But when you do the math, I think it was within the last year or two years, Russia had only spent it was like $6 billion in regards to maintaining the largest amount of nuclear capability in the world. The United States, in the flip side, has a has a smaller uh, arsenal of nukes, much more um, technologically sound, but they spent $44 billion in maintaining those nukes. So you know, if you're looking at just a nuclear aspect of maintaining those, making sure they're sound, making sure they can launch, making sure they can target something, making sure there's a smart munition, well, what the fuck are they doing with all their other munitions that, you know, we keep a must use by date, must spend by decks, must, must shoot by date, like on all of our munitions and rotate those out? I can't imagine Russia's doing that in a large scale when most of their armor is open air stored yeah. and just you know just being dissolved so I, I can imagine there's probably a lot a lot of dud rate probably a lot of misfires probably a lot of targeting mistargeting. um you know and my guess would be even a large amount of those nukes that russia does have probably won't make it 500 feet off the ground
0: yeah right it kind of does seem to be this common theme with the russian military certainly uh quantity over quality for sure i mean even looking at their armored vehicles like oh russia you know pre pre pre-invasion had you know twenty thousand tanks or whatever with the vast majority of those being in storage okay great but i mean how many of those tanks are honestly like dog shit quality
2: well that's why i think you saw the armada program get get canceled which is where they were talking about this new advanced t14 tank coming out Mm -hmm. and the terminator supporting it and a new a new uh uh bmp support or come or btr coming out of that program and a new you know the amarta was supposed to be i think three or four vehicles that were all encompassed around the t-14 but it was very expensive and it was supposed to compete with our new upgraded um abrams and the new abrams that are coming out soon yeah but uh, that program was completely announced to be scrubbed early in the war because they needed to update T-72s and their T-80s and their T-90 lines. Um, they needed to get those thermals, which now is becoming even a larger problem because, you know, they can't export French optics into into putting them into their tanks anymore because the embargoes are now in play. It's I think the, the thing that is going to be um, hard for Russia is the long play. You know, Ukraine has time and support behind it. They may not have the manpower, but if they can use drone support that, and they still have all this Western and global support coming in. It's only a matter of, I don't think Russia can really play the long game in this.
0: Yeah. I mean, even, right. even looking, Oh, sorry. What's up, John?
2: Oh,
1: no, I was just going to interject on and kind of say like, that's why we now see them as of yesterday, right? That's why we see Shoryu in North Korea. Now, um, some people are kind of trying to speculate, you know, manual labor, and this, that, they're going to send North yeah. Koreans and droves. but I, I think it's more so North Korean has large stocks of, you know, Soviet-era um, munitions and, and uh, material. And I think that, that Russia is going to try and lean on them for that because China can't necessarily um, – I was just talking to a follower, actually, in one of my comments uh, about this today, I think. Um, and th- they were kind of talking about, well, you know, they don't want to be that discreet. But I was like, North Korea does not necessarily care about being discreet when it comes to arming Russia, but China does. and China could use North Korea as a by proxy to supply Russia mm-hmm. with uh, – you know, actual aid and material and, and munitions as well, because there's plenty of, I think the point I made was there's plenty of trucks and trains that go uh, back and forth between China and North Korea all the time. It will be nothing for China to throw some things on there and then have North Korea send it to Russia as long as China can, you know, kind of maintain that deniability. So I think we it definitely, to your point, we definitely see them beginning to not, now try and lean on the few allies and partners that they have. So...
0: Yeah, absolutely. No. You know, there's even a railroad that goes from North Korea into Russia, at least one railroad that they've used at least once before. We do know of uh, at least one significant transaction of artillery ammo to Russia. And I think Russia uh, traded Kim Jong-un like some nice uh, purebred horses for it or something like that.
2: Well, I think they're going to have to use North Korea, right? Like China, China can, not in my opinion, I don't think China can openly come out and be supporting Russia in the war. Yeah meaning it's, it's going to affect them globally if they do that. And I believe they know that as well, but they can do it very much in a proxy aspect of, you know, throwing stuff to North Korea and whatever North Korea supplies to Russia. Well, fuck it. You know, that's not my problem. It's not my chair. Not my problem. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. yeah.
0: all right yeah chris i I really wanted to have you here because um like i was saying before we started recording i think probably you and uh nick over with battles and beers probably have the best uh ukraine coverage at least on instagram for
2: sure (laughs) Well, thanks. I think there's a, a good amount of groups that are, are doing some good work, but Nick is definitely my boy. I, uh, you know, I got a lot of respect for the work that he does. Um, I try and bounce off a little bit of him and, um, yeah, he's, he's a great dude, but, uh, I think it's just important to, to try and be open and honest and, and show people what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh,
0: Wanted to kind of jump into this counteroffensive here, because, you know, obviously when things kicked off, me and you talked uh, a little bit over on Instagram, just looking at some of the things we were seeing. And I know in particular, we talked about the 47th mechanized and you were kind of telling me about what what their whole deal was sort of. Uh, they are kind of a picture of what Ukraine's military is, is going to be like post-war right in terms of western equipment and, and training and tactics and all those things um but in the beginning they're kind of having a rough
2: time it looked like they still are you know that the counteroffensive is not um you know it's not fast and i i think people expected it to be mm-hmm. uh, or expected that they were just going to completely blow through i i guess you know, what we can consider is almost the world's most, is the world's most mined land in the, <laughs> today. Um, but I I think there's also a misconception of how war is conducted with a lot of people that just watch one-minute videos on Instagram. And, uh, you know, the 47th in the way that Ukraine is conducting their counteroffensive is not easy. They are choosing to push through probably the most defended area of the entire front line for ukraine in the largest mined um section that they could choose from and in my personal opinion they're probably doing that to make a piercing dive through to close the door and hold on to crimea area after that you know i would imagine if you wanted to see quick success you would you would punch directly east um and kind of Follow up from where you initially did your first counter offensive uh, months ago, um, but that's not necessarily what they're doing. And I think that's because they want to hold on to the ocean access, the bridges access and into Crimea. Um, now, because of that, you know, you have a huge minefield that's three to 10 kilometers wide. And if anyone has done any type of research on how Russia conducts warfare with mines, it's, it's pretty terrible. You know, they're very, they're pretty active on mining the living shit out of anything that they do. And there's no real set in stone pattern for their mine placement. So it's very hard to clear. Um, us uses set patterns. We have multiple different patterns, but usually that means if you can find one mine and you know, the placement of it and you find the second placement, you can then understand the pattern of the mines that have been set makes clearing a little bit easier. Russia doesn't do that. Um, And so, you know, it makes it hard uh, in a counteroffensive where there's no air control for either side.
0: Yeah, I know uh, looking at mines, obviously like heavily mined area, especially with uh, anti-armor mines at first, but now since Ukraine has had to deal with it anti-tank mines so much they've had to dismount from their vehicles obviously and rush has taken a look at that and now they're placing anti-tank mines along with anti-personnel mines so it's just like there's no winning
2: yeah nick's had a couple of good interviews uh in regards to guys that are dealing with that you know i think that's that's something we're going to see always be combined I, I feel like a little bit you know to trap them and yeah you know right now if if you just getting into into like gear and technology if you if you can't rely on the ability of air cover which is one advancement that you know russia has they can they can rely on the ka-52 attack helicopters with wire-guided missiles hanging out in the back right where ukraine can't necessarily kind of do that and it's very hard to to knock those helicopters out because man pads uh don't really have that range and you can't really bring big AA systems up to the front. Um, you know, the only other option that you have at that point is to do an assault through a minefield with your sappers, uh, your Miklik, um, you know, mine clearing devices. But apparently some doing some of the research on equipment that was sent over there, only 15% of that equipment was actually sent to Ukraine of what was requested before the counter assault even started. And so I think that became a kind of a bog down for Ukraine. Uh, they didn't have enough mine clearing equipment and didn't expect truly the amount of mines, I think. And the KA-52s became a problem. Um, and so you're seeing them adjust their tactics a little bit with uh, using a lot more guys on the ground, a lot more sapper play doing anti-mine and a lot more Miklik, um, Miklik use.
0: Yeah, this uh, this whole defensive system that's going on in the south is really i guess the the baby of uh general sergey servik and of course he's the commander of the aerospace forces but he was also in charge of all russian forces in ukraine for a little bit last year and he's generally seen as more of a uh defensive uh sort of general instead of really being aggressive and always going on the offensive um and even though he's not in command right now uh He's apparently resting. I've been assured of this. He has not been uh, arrested, (laughs) I am told. Um, Even though he's not in command, obviously, they're still using his defensive, his defense in depth system, you know, heavily utilizing trenches, both kinds of mines, as well as uh, helicopters outside of man pads range, which I've also been assured that attack helicopters have no place in modern war. So I don't really know what's going on here, but Uh, This is this is a hard place to try and penetrate. You know, Russia's had uh, months, months upon months to to build up the defenses in this area. And that's why they've had more uh, defensive success, I could say, than as opposed to Bakhmut, where they have not had time to build up their defenses. Uh, And this this is going to be a grind. It it was always going to be a grind. Right. I think you were saying earlier, Chris, you know, people had um, these expectations that it was just going to be this lightning offensive. And I know me and John have talked about that before too. Mm-hmm. And that was that was obviously never going to be the case. This is going to be much like the uh Kursom counteroffensive than it was the uh, Kharkiv counteroffensive for sure.
2: I think people just expected that when they saw the counteroffensive initially happen in the north sector and Ukraine took back thousands of kilometers of land, that they were like, oh shit, like well this is what's going to happen. You know, but the the timing's not the same. And Russia is not nearly as spread as it was back then and it, they're not nearly as they you know back in that time Russia wasn't set in stone in those in those sectors yeah I think moving fluidly back and forth and that kind of comes back to my point where I'm like if if Ukraine wanted to take a lot of land you know and just said we can go directly east and let's start closing the door and bring it down south. I would imagine that they probably would have seen a very good amount of gains there because Russia still has to push those push those back and forth on their own land and conduct combat in that area. So you can't necessarily also mine the own areas that you then have to drive back forward into, you know, the south, the southern area where is expected to be like, well, if Ukraine pushes through here and then tries to close the door south in this more southern eastern region, then those guys are going to be having a much harder time because they have to dig through a large minefield and can have helicopters sit in the back of this minefield while and I think what Ukraine did was that's why you saw the 47th pump two a six Leos in the front of their Brads. And they were hoping to use those Leos with probably the better optics, um, maybe a little better range with their guns and have the Brad supported with that which is why you didn't see any of the M 55 super tanks that are inside the 47th be engaged in any of this co- uh, counteroffensive thus far. So like they just have not been. And so my guess is that Ukraine has been putting out like, let's say uh, like a, like a little tentacles of little, little spearheads, right? Can we push through here? Can we push through here? Can we push through here? And if we get through one of those, well, then let's send a bulkhead through. And I, I think that's kind of what they're hoping for, but it's going to be slow going regardless of what people think. You know, these these this is a year and a half into essentially the largest war that we have probably, the world has seen in quite some time. And lines have been established, you know, minefields have been laid, which are now some of the largest minefields the world has ever seen. Uh, you now have drone automation that ha- can auto set mines back into minefields without a sapper having to go out there and place it you know, it's it's going to be a hard push. Um, I, th- I think it's going to be difficult for them. But to that point, you know, we've the U.S. has committed 190 Bradleys to Ukraine as of today. And in the the counteroffensive that has gone on, Ukraine has roughly only lost about 15 of those Bradleys and 16 other of them have been damaged. But of those 15 that have been destroyed, it's been it's been supposedly spoken that eight of them have been repaired. So you're seeing the survivability of the Brad go up, not only for the troop, but that they're being able to repair them and put them back into fight. Um, I think is something that also probably wouldn't happen with the BTR and the in the B and the BMP platforms if they would hit the same munitions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And much you know, adding on to your point earlier, we have not seen a lot of Ukrainian assets engage in this counteroffensive yet. I mean, even looking at strikers, I think Ukraine is hundred uh, sixty-ish strikers, or at least they will once they get this new delivery of the thirty-two that just got announced. But those haven't been used
2: at all.
1: No, they haven't. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't seen them at all in there.
2: No, the I, uh, not at all. And I'm a striker guy. That's I'm. You know, I've been trying to keep tabs on the striker because I'm a genuine striker guy. So I'm like, where is this going? Where is this, what is this truck going to be used at? And I haven't seen them in used in at all in the engagement yet.
0: Yeah. What, what kind of role do you
2: think those may play once they're actually engaged? To be honest, the only thing that I can imagine maybe they're going to be used for is some of the smaller units are doing um, really quick action trench hits like um, Yuri and a couple of his guys where they'll take three or. Four uh, Hummers, and they've got fifty cows on top, and guys in back of one of a an open like a I forget what the the version of the Hummer was where it was like um it just had an open back two door style and could just carry a bunch of dudes in the back of it. You know which one I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. So they'll run like two gun trucks in front of it with fifties, and then they'll have one of those in the back with troops, and then they'll just do a hard assault on a trench line. You know, the Striker's not necessarily meant it's not meant to go up against t72s and t80s and things like that it, it is self-sustainable as a unit meaning it it has a i think the striker has a 105 smoothbore version it's got a tow version you know there's 50s and mark 19s on it it's got a big big mortar system so that depending on the version that go over there it it can kind of fill multiple roles And it is fast. So if the ground is hard, especially during the summer months, the striker can get up to 75 miles an hour and it can hold a lot of guys in the back. So, you know, me personally, I'd probably be using it for hit attacks, just trench lines and trying to do quick in and out pushing and then pulling the striker back to support with a heavier uh, gun as the, the guys on the ground start going to work.
0: Yeah, well... I'm, so, I'm definitely interested to see uh, where and when those get put into place.
1: It, it, there's also, I, I think I've heard, and I've heard a couple people, mostly male bloggers talking about this, um saying, you know, there's a possibility they they're holding them back in the, um, and, you know, uh, please correct my numbers if this is incorrect, but I, from what I've been able to surmise is that there's about nine brigades that they still have in reserve of um that, that are equipped with Western aid. Um I'm not hundred percent sure I haven't been able to fully that's more of an unconfirmed number but um so I'm assuming that they're either um with those or um or or they're they're holding them back essentially for um you know a, a breakthrough because you mentioned the speed and I think it's similar to, uh to kind of compound on the point you made Chris before, which is that you know people kind of thought this would be the car key of offensive and me and and me and um Modi had mentioned this before uh, in the last podcast we were talking about how how depleted the Russian units were and, and you also mentioned Chris how like this is not this is not that right this is the, the Russian force and their force makeup along the front lines is not the same as it was then um right. and I think and so I think we're not seeing this depleted Russian force now um but I do think if we if a breakthrough like Kharkiv does happen or even even a little smaller than that I, I'm not saying you know they need to make thousands of square um, miles worth of uh gains but I think they they would be very good at you uh, exploiting a breakthrough You know, with the speed and maneuverability that they do have, um, with with a combined arms uh, element, of course. But um, I, I don't see them out there. You know, like with one Humvee. You know, with a fifty. I think we all remember that infamous video, of you know them them hard charging out there with the fifty on top of the uh the Humvee. You know, um, suppressing a. I believe it was a B BTR. I believe which arguably you know wasn't the smartest idea, but, but they did it because the Russians were in full retreat. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I do think it could be used to, you know, at scale could be used to exploit a breakthrough. I think you touched on a point though, that was really good before, which was the idea Um, uh, uh, Brody mentioned this, right. Which is the, the idea how Gerasimov kind of, um, has adopted, uh, Cyril Vigan's baby because Cyril Vigan so far has been seen as the only competent, uh, person within Russian hire, to, to date, right? Who or not not fully competent, but you know, uh, as competent as he was, and then they kind of, you know, uh, I the, I think it, the idea was that Gerasimov somehow promised uh, Putin that he could make certain gains, and then we, that's where we kind of saw the winter offensive, which didn't really um, amount to much. Um, but so, but from what I've seen, right, is it's it's more so a passive defense, right? Because in the northeast, we see them doing uh, not necessarily offensive actions, but you know, small attacks to kind of as what I what kind of looks like to me like a fixing operation right so to fix as many forces up in the north as they can to kind of hamstring the uh Ukrainian effort in the south as much as possible
0: yeah I probably go ahead go ahead no I I do think we we have seen an uptick in Russian activity uh particularly I want to say around Kremina and Spotovo I think uh you're right john they definitely are trying like some sort of fixing maneuvers to try and keep ukrainian units in place so they can't be used elsewhere i think probably particularly in bakhmut because looking at in terms of territory recapture the size of territory i think that's probably where ukraine has had the most uh effectiveness in this counteroffensive because russian positions aren't aren't so dug in around bakhmut cuz they just got done with their offensive over there right but you have like ukrainian intelligence reports saying that I think like a hundred thousand Russian troops, according to them, are sort of in the Crimea, like Spoltovo area, building up for an offensive. I don't really know what's going on there, but it's certainly something to keep an eye on as things. Uh, yeah, they've been know.
1: say they they've been saying that for for a little while. The last number I heard was actually close to two hundred thousand, which um uh that just doesn't seem possible for the that Russians to like marshal. Stretch, yeah, yeah, it doesn't seem possible for the Russians to be able to marshal that many forces. I was having a conversation. Um, with uh, uh, somebody on Twitter before, and they made a good point. They were talking about the mobilization uh, of uh, the, the past Russian mobilizations and how, um, and uh, I think the thing that was circled around a lot during the mobilizations, especially the initial 300,000 uh, mobilization uh, last year was that, right, the United States with its training infrastructure as vast as it is, could not cycle through 300,000 forces in the time period that Russia had set out for it to do so so how could the russians possibly do that and so if we go to the second mobilization and then the third partial mobilization we still don't have much evidence that they even met the initial mobilization we know mm-hmm. one thing we know for almost certain is that about 80,000 of them initial were sent of the initial mobilized were sent to the front line right off the bat because they need to stabilize those, those lines immediately and then even then, though, we don't know how stable the lines were. So you, we can assume that more mobilized would have to be sent to the front lines to fully reconstitute, fully replenish them. Um, so you uh, fast forward to today, and if, you, if that's an indicator of anything about their mobilization, how well it's going, I just don't see the Russians being able to marshal 200,000 forces anywhere within any AOR on the battlefield right now um, and, and not severely deplete another area on the battlefield. And if they are doing that, then Ukraine's um up, uh, they're about to be up for a massive breakthrough.
0: Yeah, even even looking at what you were saying with mobilization, we do obviously we don't know what specific ratio or amount or whatever, but we do know it. A good amount of Russians were basically handed mobilization notices, but never actually had to report to um, mm. recruitment offices for training, right? Or because did- I mean Russia. Didn't have the infrastructure to train them because most of their training cadre are in combat units right now.
2: That's that's kind of crazy to think about, you know. And, and it's it's worth noting that both sides are doing conscription. So you yeah, know, you know that's something I think people need to keep in mind is that you know Ukraine is definitely taking people as well. Um, you know that that's just you know guys are not allowed to leave from either country if you're within a certain amount of age you know your your ticket can get pulled and and you can be told that you need to serve yeah i mean in ukraine it's anywhere from like
0: 18 to 60 even if even if you're 60 years old you still can't leave the country because you're subject to conscription right looking at russia they actually just uh signed into law the raising of the maximum age for conscription from 27 to 30. 30 so anywhere from 18 to 30 years old you're subject to conscription which is interesting because i know according to russian law conscripts can't be uh deployed abroad if russia is not in a time of war of course they kind of broke that rule in the, beg- the very beginning of the invasion excuse me for like two weeks or something they deployed their conscripts to ukraine but kind of pulled them back after that so i don't i don't really know uh what exactly is going on with this new law that they just passed unless they plan it's on something... deploying these conscripts but
1: yeah without reading it i guess right you know without having the the documentation in front of us we can't really know the ins and outs because there could be a, a myriad of amendments i'm not really sure how the duma works at all i can't speak for their, their uh the procedural stuff but um uh, there could be add-ons and stuff, you know, that that kind of finds loopholes in this the conscription thing. Because I think the idea that they're not sending conscripts to this conflict, it's like, well, then how did they stabilize their front lines if they weren't sending these conscripts to the front lines? Because then where else would they be pulling these forces? Because we know they're not Rosgardia, so
0: yeah. Well, they were getting a, a good amount of extra manpower from these volunteer units, right? Which, from my understanding, these guys were given some, uh some decent benefits to sign up for volunteer units for like six months or something like that. And a lot of these dudes were um, older guys, you know, guys in the thirties, forties, maybe even fifties in some cases that saw an opportunity to get a, a decent amount of pay with these volunteer units. And that kind of shorted up their numbers a little bit just before mobilization happened. Mm-hmm.
1: One thing I've also wondered though, is, is, is how is the pay going? Because I know that a big thing for the, the Wagner forces was, that like the, the, the kind of thing that enticed people to join up was like, Hey, you know, we're actually getting paid. Um, uh, and, and I'm not a hundred percent certain how that's working with, with, uh, you know, regular RU forces, um, you know, uh, army forces, are, are they getting paid on time? Are they getting paid what they were told? Are these benefits that they were told, are they actually, you know, are they realizing these benefits in, uh, once they're, um, their uh, you know their rotation is over. Are their rotations that they're signing up for actually um accurate, right? You know, are they not being kept on the front lines? So I, I think a lot of these things play a big aspect into that as well.
0: Yeah, see that's a that's a good question. I know obviously there's a difference in uh salary between you know contract soldiers and mm-hmm. um, guys that were mobilized right against their will and then also guys in volunteer units and Wagner Um, And there's still some volunteer units kind of popping up here and there, but certainly not as much as um, just before mobilization happened. Because before mobilization, I know pretty much every federal subject in Russia was mandated to create some volunteer units to kind of shore up those numbers. And again, those guys had decent benefits. On paper, you know, it's a question as to whether they were actually paid what they were promised. Same thing goes with contract soldiers. But Mm -hmm. And even even for contract soldiers, you know, you could be done with your contract, right? Um, you know, a Russian version of EAS or ETS or whatever you want to call it. And then right after that, you're you're subject to mobilization. They could hand you your mobilization notice, I mean, the day you uh, end your contract with the Russian military, and then you're not getting <laughs> paid as much as you were as a contract soldier. And uh yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that would be incredibly unlucky for anybody who that's happened to.
0: Yeah, yeah that would suck.
1: But uh, if, if we want to talk about it, we could talk about the, um as well, uh, kind of the Ukrainian long-range fires campaign that they've become waging, specifically on Crimea. I think they've been doing a good job with that. I think that's one thing they've consistently done a good job with is utilizing the long-range fires that they do have. Um, I think we saw, and we've seen different tactics too, just recently... Uh, within the past uh, 72 hours, we saw that cruise missile strike um, on uh, on certain uh, field depots and whatnot in, in Crimea, and, but they were leading them out with, uh, you know, with uh, loading munitions and, and uh, drones. Um, I'm not 100% sure the reasoning behind it. There's a couple ideas that I've kind of been bouncing around in my head, the possibility, right, not necessarily saturate the enemy air defense, but to distract it essentially, and then have these cruise missiles, cruise missiles coming right behind, I believe it was three to four I still haven't been able to find an exact number. Um, the Russian bloggers are saying uh, three, and then uh, the Ukrainian bloggers are saying four. So it's kind of hard to pinpoint it. But I, I do think that they're um, they're doing really great at hitting targets in the in the Russian rear, um, in rear areas. I think they've been doing really good at that. The Russians seems less so. They seem to be. I think the misallocation of Russian long range fires is like a consistent thing that we've seen this whole war, right? You know. Uh, even the way they use their loader and munitions, uh, you know, they were attacking the infant Ukrainian's infrastructure, but they weren't, you know, hitting the right points and things like that. Um, you were mentioning uh, early; both of you guys mentioned how early on in the war they were, you know, they cut. They we kind of saw them, you know, hitting, you know, uh, you know, company HQs and things like that. But you know, we saw them seeing hitting really small unit headquarters and things like that with like scanners, which just doesn't seem to be. Um, I, I, it just doesn't seem like the ratio. To, doesn't seem to uh, add up right there at all um to you know allocate an iskander strike on a company hq or things like that or sometimes when it got to like the zenith of like the the absolute malarkey we kind of saw them using iskanders and uh, what some people would call strategic assets to to hit a tank like a single tank or single or you know artillery battery out in the open um instead of you know allocating a counter battery fire and things like that but I, i do think that the their strikes in Crimea have been pretty textbook and hopefully it, you know, potentiates some success um, up North further.
0: Yeah. I think throughout this war, Ukraine has really at least impressed me with how they use their longer range munitions. I mean, looking at high Mars when they first got them and being able to attack, you know, Russian supply depots and ammo depots um, and especially using them at night, right. Because it's harder for the Russians mm. to find the systems with the counter battery strikes And then also looking at UAVs, I think they've been incredibly effective with those, whether it be striking Crimea or whether it be striking Moscow, right? I think there was an Mm -hmm. attack on uh, some Ministry of Defense building like two days ago in Moscow. And then, of course, the Storm Shadow missiles that they got from the UK, you know, they just killed uh, General Oleg uh, Sokov, who was a deputy commander of the Southern Military District. And basically they killed him. In uh, Berdyansk on an attack on the command post of the 58th Combined Arms Army, which like is insane. Um, I mean, the deputy commander of the Southern Military District, I think he is to date the highest ranking Russian general in terms of like billet. Uh, That's been Mm -hmm. killed in this invasion.
1: In terms of long range decapitation strikes, I mean, that's that's textbook. That's exactly what those are for. Um, it, it, they almost essentially achieved what we couldn't, you know, in the uh, in the uh, opening uh, shot to the Gulf War, you know, trying to uh, target Saddam. Um, so that that's pretty great. It's, it's great to see them use, you know, a lot of this Western tech and apply it, you know, through Western doctrine and things like that. I think that's one thing that we're, we're, they're having a trouble, you know, and hard time on the ground. You know, we've seen that um, Chris mentioned, you know, talking about their breaching operations and how hard that's been for them in the past. But mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, They'll they'll learn through that breaching. Uh, there's like two operations that I think is the hardest for any ground force. Um and pe- you know the uh people within the force have said this as well, right? And I believe that's gap crossings and uh, breaching operations. Um so uh for the Ukrainians to be doing as well as they are, you know, it's 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 the learning curve, and you know they'll definitely get better. We've already seen them since we last spoke. Um uh, you uh, we've definitely seen them get better. So, uh, it's a learning curve, but to see them. The allocation of air power and the allocation of the long range fires have been textbook. I mean, it's like it's right out of um an XX-XX, you know, uh manual or something like that. So it's a, uh, it's pretty interesting to see it.
2: I don't think that's gonna stop either. You know, as as uh time goes on, technology and time is in favor of Ukraine right now. Exactly. Yeah. And uh You know, they're only going to get better and you don't necessarily need to have more people to win an engagement. Ukraine is very, a very proven point of that. And it's becoming to the point where you may not even need a full Air Force and Navy uh, if you can build a drone army large enough.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Uh,
2: And I I think Ukraine is is showing that uh, very well. Yeah, and, I mean not. Russia. Russia
0: has had such a difficult time defending against Ukrainian drones. I mean, Chris, you mm. made a post after that strike in Moscow. I think there was like a Pantsir system that couldn't even shoot down this drone from like 300 meters away. It's like what?
2: Sitting on top of the, sitting on top of the building, looking right at it.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Perfect. I mean, perfect firing position to take down this drone, and so couldn't even do that.
2: Was this that
1: famous Panzer that everyone saw peeking over a couple months ago? The MOD was it? Was it? Do we know if it was that system that you know the Russians were touting was you know going to be the thing that was going to stop Ukrainian strikes on Moscow?
0: I think Wait, it was uh, one of them, right, Chris? Because they put a few up there in Moscow. It's yeah, not just one.
2: No, there was a few that, that they had placed. Um, we had actually done a post on it. I think I put it on our on our threads and um somewhere else. And it was a Panzer S one. Uh, that was estimated to be right about 300 meters away from the the attack um. you know and, and that's a short-range anti-aircraft missile and gun system it was pl- and it's placed directly on top of the Russian Ministry of Defense it was placed there if I'm if I'm correct at the end of 2022 Um, it's still located there which is what was taken fo- photos when the drone attack was was struck and you know, eyewitnesses said that it wasn't even operational Monday morning when the fucking drones were there. What?
1: Which is indicative of Russian preparation and and, or the lack thereof.
0: Yeah, well, you know what? I was even just thinking right now, what about that uh, drone attack on the Kremlin from, what was that, like a month, month and a half ago or something like that? Yeah. And I think that that drone was like shot down. I mean, like literally yards from hitting the dome of the kremlin right but the fact that that drone was able to get so close to the russian version of the white house like what what is going on here
1: yeah i just could never imagine that now obviously you know where there's a whole ocean uh um kind of protecting two oceans protecting us from you know any potential adversaries but i mm-hmm. i I, could, I would hope that you know and i i would also just assume that even um if we were next to an you know an adversary nation we were in I would just think that we would have I mean Ukraine has shown right Ukraine has shown right they the very extensive um early warning system they have uh, which has been going off even as we speak uh there's cruise missiles hitting Kyiv I believe or uh or supposed to be inbound to Kyiv um but uh in other areas, I believe the Kharkiv as well um this is uh, funny when listening this is the uh this is the 26th of July so um but you know, almost every day we're seeing these things. But Ukraine has a very extensive um, anti-air uh, framework set up, um, air defense framework set up. That is, if you look at how how it's kind of set up, it it mirrors. Um, and I'm losing the exact uh, terminology for it, but uh, NATO's air defense network that they have, their framework that they have built up, which kind of shows the uh, the interoperability kind of already being there, and then also the, um, the how how much they're liaising with. Um, you know NATO NATO as well to learn and how much they're implementing it but one thing that I've seen that Ukrainians have been doing effectively is placing MANPAD teams on the paths of cruise missiles or the, the general paths of cruise missiles and like stationing them in these towns and things like that so that um, when these air raid alerts go off they come outside and they're waiting for these cruise missiles to fly above them or, or drones to fly above them yeah to counter the cruise missile yeah exactly yeah um and and we've seen plenty of videos of them shooting, you know, calibers out of the sky with a strela or something like that. Which is, you know, to me, I mean, two years ago, I, I would never tell you that that, yeah, you know, someone's gonna be shooting tomahawks or something like that out of the sky. I do, the I call bullshit. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was
2: like, but I've seen it. I've I've seen multiple videos of a dude shooting a cruise missile out of the sky with a man pad. And like to your point, years ago, I'd be like, There's that's bullshit. There's no way in hell that's happening. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, and I mean, even then, I thought it was bullshit
0: until I saw multiple videos of it. The first yeah. one, I was very skeptical, but. Yeah, the first one, I was sure, like,
1: he fired it, missed, and then, like, an S300 or something hit it or something yeah. like that. But then we saw it multiple times, and the videos just got better and better. Like, somebody was, no. You know, like, it was, uh, they were like, all right, we'll get an HD camera this time, so they make sure we know we did this. But I think that also eludes to, you know, the 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 idea that, you know, so many ideas about large-scale conventional operations are getting turned over on their heads now just because of, um, like Chris was mentioning before, not only new advancements in technology, but um, this also things that, you know, capabilities that a lot of weapon systems had and um, that they may not have been made for this, but are, but it's like, hey, this will work, for, you know, these will be able to fulfill this mission as well. Um, so creating like this multi-mission aspect or, um, you know, f- for these weapon systems, which is pretty cool to see because, you know, like we just said, I would never be able to imagine a couple of years ago that, um, people will be shooting cruise missiles at the sky with a man pad.
0: Yeah, that's a certified battlefield for a moment. Down. Hypersonics, I as well, I guess, have been.
1: <laughs> yeah, that did go over my head.
0: <laughs> Fuck. Uh,
1: Hypersonics, as well, though, have been kind of taking a hit, right? I think um, it's their invincibility, though. Now, I'm not speaking to ones that have maneuverable glider vehicles and things like that but you know just the idea was that the speed would beat the um the the speed itself would beat you know any type of uh ad in any area and we saw the patriots shoot them out the sky so that is a yeah, good but, plus to know
2: you know that that's a common misconception i think of just people that don't understand ballistics in a way that munitions work and you know just because something is fast does not mean that it's defeatable mm-hmm. you know or that it's not defeatable you know if if a if you're using a hypersonic system and it's coming against an AA system, all that AA system needs to know is where that hypersonic is going to be at any given point in time. And if it knows where that projectile is going to be, then it can intercept that projectile.
1: Exactly, yeah. which is something that, you know, you are, I would say, USAD is pretty good at. um Not only did Western AD in at. general, I think. Yeah. um Whereas uh, the Russians, and, and it's funny, another thing that's been flipped on its head is this whole mantra that, you know, Russian air defense reigns supreme because uh, the Ukrainians are asking for more and more and more Western air defense. You know, they're not asking for people to backfill their F 300s as much anymore because they're missing. Um, and we kind of see this in, in uh, from, you know, the Russians um stockpiles as well. um You know, th- these, you know, these weapon systems are missing more and more and more. And I'm not, I can't speak to whether it's the missiles themselves, the targeting, the radar and things like that. Or, or is it also the quality of the operators as well um, as Russia loses them? Because I think one big thing that we saw, too, as well, it, attrition wise, is that Russia lost the majority, if not all, of their professional force early on in the war, just based off of their misallocation of everything, of forces of, and, and of fires. So they lost a lot of their professional and, and their like well-kept stocks of things very pretty early on, I would probably say within the first half, half a year to to, uh, to year uh, in the war. You know, they, they kind of lost its professional force. And now it's mostly, you know, conscription and, and mobilized, I would assume. Um, I, would, I, I think there's very little left of people. So I think operators also may come down to it. Right. And I think the Ukrainians are getting some great training abroad, too, as well. But also they're translating a lot of that training to their own training regimes as well, which is helping a lot.
2: But Too much on that point, I think you, you are correct in regards that Ukraine is getting a lot of, a lot of training abroad and then you're seeing organizations that are standing up inside of Ukraine much like um you know Dynamic Principles and Task Force 31 and Backyard Camp and uh Sa- like Sabers another one and and these are all organizations that are inside of Ukraine that are training Ukrainians either by western standards with individuals coming in and giving advanced training after they've gone to these other outside of Ukraine locations to train And so the up train, the goal with these organizations has always been, look, we may not be training thousands and tens of thousands of troops, but that's not the goal. If I can take 300 of those Ukrainian troops and I can and I can make company commanders out of them or platoon commanders out of them, then those guys will be able to teach uh, platoons or companies of Ukrainians after I leave. And that's the goal.
1: Exactly, and then they in turn will be able to. That 300 can then move out to the force, and they can train thousands on the Absolutely. same techniques and and procedures that they learned themselves.
0: Yeah, on, I, I, I think know. that is very important because mm. you know, Chris, me, and you talked a little bit about uh, some of the failures in leadership, um, especially when this counteroffensive first began. Right, uh, some of this more senior leaders kind of reverted back to maybe a more Soviet era mindset when, uh, you know, they started trying to push up against these Russian lines and, and maybe got a little bit more resistance than they were expecting. And instead of falling back on their Western training, they they kind of reverted more to a Soviet era mindset.
2: Yeah. And, and I, I agree with that. I think it's hard to break, um, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to break, uh, I, what's, what's the, what's the phrase, uh, bad, um, training scars, I guess, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and and these guys don't have a lot of time as much as as we do. Right. You know, to 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 truly get involved and train and understand everything, maybe as much as just a basic infantry guy is getting um, from the U.S. military as he's up training. Some of these guys are getting a couple of weeks before they rotate into probably the most worst bombardment that any of us have seen in our entire existence, other than watching a movie on World War Two. And we're judging them based off the actions of what they're doing on an Instagram video that's a minute long. You know, it's it's kind of crazy to me when I when I think about that, because they're still volunteering to fight and defend their land and, and 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 be involved in this. And out of the other locations of where I've gone to war and train, the Iraqi or the Iraqis in the ing were nowhere near as motivated to learn and defend their land as these people are. And they're not seeing nearly the the type of war that, uh you know, the Ukrainian people are, you know, in I, I don't know. I I think it, it just it, I think that's one of the reasons why you're also seeing so many Western people go over there and volunteer is because it's a little bit refreshing.
0: Hmm. Got it. You
2: kind
1: of touched on uh, Chris, you just touched on something that was really great that, you know, the idea of you kind of compared the Iraqis and I would also compare the NA to the Ukrainians, I think. That was one thing that was kind of hampering aid to come from a lot of Western countries, especially the United States, because we didn't want to see a repeat of um, the situation at HKAA, um, uh, at Hamid Karzai Airport, you know, down the line uh, at Hostomel Airport, let's say, right, you know, down the line because we gave all this aid and then all this stuff, you know, fell into the hands of the Taliban and stuff simply because the ANA didn't put up a fight. Um, I I think we uh, and, you know, in the past uh, when ISIS kind of took over, um, you know they, we saw the iraqi forces kind of do the same thing you know they had they had the means to fight back but they didn't um, they didn't fight back and so the I ukrainians that, The only one holding yeah, on mm-hmm, the ukrainians held on um, I, I, I know that um, um that yeah yeah the, the iraqi special forces were like the, some of the only people who are um who are you know fighting oh, back fight. yeah yeah um, and s- s- same with the ana if, if i remember correctly you know they were some of the few guys who were still you know fighting back
0: um, yeah, they they use their special forces. I mean, for everything, man. Those guys did yeah. the vast majority of the fighting. You know, from those are the only guys April, in the fight. It April leading
2: up to the the fall of Kabul. Yeah, I mean, but you, you can't expect everything. those guys to be the only guys that are going to hold on. Yeah, like, exactly. Not the yeah. way it's going to work, man. You, you know, like dude, there's 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 fifty eight year old fucking teachers that were in our classes that know they're going to Bakhmut they were just teachers beforehand they were glass repairmen or mechanics like weeks fucking prior and they know where they're going you know like it's it's not like we're we're bullshitting these these guys it's very real to them of what's about to happen to them and they're asking us like begging us like yo stay longer teach us like tell us i'll mimic your movements like what do i need to know and out of 20 years of fucking our global war on terror, I don't think I heard a single one of those guys from either one of those countries ask me that. So they yeah, like it, you learn more. Yeah, like like I couldn't even get an ING dudes to do fucking jumping jacks, you know, like 80 <laughs> percent of them, missed their Graduation Day. I'm like, fuck, dude, this is your country you know and it's it's just i don't know like the the civilian populace in our country is very quick to judge that of what we do and 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 see all this and expect things to happen certain ways when they've never experienced it touch foot on it or ever been in those countries in any way shape or form or probably even spoken to anyone from those countries and when i go to ukraine and i see the people and i that are volunteering to fight or being conscripted to fight and then still volunteering to be like teach me more i want to understand more you know, you're you're about to get, walk into what you could consider as Stalingrad, or you know, World War One pounding of artillery fire and armored vehicles fighting at you, and attack helicopters to the level of shit that none of our military has ever experienced. Uh, I I just have a lot of respect for that of uh, the will of those people.
1: Yeah, exactly, and, and they will to hold on because, um, it, alluding to the what we were talking about just before, uh, right before. Um, we we kind of got into the a and a and stuff, right? But the Ukrainians fought back, fought back decisively without all this aid. First, the aid, you know, I know they had, you know, they had some of the man pads, they had a lot of um, uh, javelins. But you know, it, that was kind of it. It was like ATGMs, or ammunition, and 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 man pad ammunition and man pads. That was kind of it. They didn't have, you know, these strategic assets or anything like that. They didn't have the influx of armor and things like that. They mm-hmm. fought back with what they had, with what they had been taught since 2014, with that knowledge. Um, and that that was all them, and you you got to give it to them. Um, And sometimes I do kind of, you know, criticize, you know, the U.S. government as well as other Western governments for kind of saying, hey, yeah, we want to see if you're going to fight back. I think within a week we should have had stuff being sent over there. Thankfully, you know, we did end up, we did fast track a lot of this stuff, but I think within the first couple of days, once it became clear they weren't just going to immediately roll over, I think, you know, we should have been all in. But, you You know know... that's you know you can't uh, look back too much in the past and try and change it but you know the best thing we can do is look to the future and try and uh, change our policies and things like that in the future
0: Gents, we're we're going on about two hours here. So let's kind of start to try and close things out. Chris, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, before you sort of get some closing comments is uh, this post you made. I can't remember what it was, maybe, oh, maybe no. a week or two ago about <laughs> uh, uh, Russia and Belarus like deporting Ukrainian children. Does that
2: ring a bell to you? Oh, dude, you know, and I was so upset about that post because I even, um I put it into, I'm in a big group of a bunch of pages that kind of do work like what I do. Yeah. And I had posted that, um, that topic hoping that it would get more traction based off uh, just some things that are in the movie theaters right now and sort of what's movie, going yeah. on. Uh, in in the world and how big of you know an impact this truly is and it got no fucking traction you know it was totally bogged down I was uh, by uh, by meta oh yeah dude well meta
0: meta platforms are like horrible horrible for for news and and talking about you know sensitive topics and such which sucks because you know I mean Instagram and and you know facebook and even like threads to an extent are like great avenues for talking about news but meta suppresses yeah, the yeah. topics like so much and you know i personally i'll even admit that i have not talked about this subject like nearly as much as i should have especially as a father you know it probably should be uh something i i think about more and speak on more but sure. yeah chris you want to just give us a rundown of what's going on with this
2: I, you know, I think it's something that a lot of people haven't really touched on a bit. And there's organizations that have been doing a lot of good work um, really focusing on this topic, which is uh, the kidnapping of Ukrainian children and bringing them back to occupied territories, uh, putting them into uh, what are indoctrinized camps and then uh, absorbing them into really very structured Russian and Belarus pro uh, learning lessons from a very young age. And uh, that's just, it's just, it's just, it's just obvious flat out brainwashing essentially is what's happening. Um, And there's uh, really global organizations that are trying to figure out how to get these kids back from what was initially occupied areas and as Ukraine started to pull this or initially started their initial uh, counteroffensive and took back territories, found out that a lot of their children were ended up actually being uh, taken and, and taken to Belarus.
0: So uh, how, how are they getting these kids Are a lot of these kids orphans or how, how does that work?
2: Yeah, so there were a lot of orphans and early on inside of the uh, early months of Ukraine, there was actually missions where a lot of guys were going out to try and get these kids or going out to orphans to rescue them. Um, I think that's a majority of what some of these were. I think some of them are also probably survivors from where their family members have probably uh, all died. Um, Some of it's probably, uh, I don't know, overwhelming an area and they can't get out and they separate the parents from the children. Um, You know, it's I think it's kind of a a collaboration of all of it. We have roughly any idea how many kids have been taken. Oh, I don't know. Um, there's two agencies that I was working with that claimed over a couple of thousand. Um, I know that the Belarus, they said that there was about 1500 that were up in that area uh, one of the camps. But it's all kind of speculation, I believe, at this point. It's, you know, it's like asking how many people have died in the war, how how fast the lines moved back and forth through the last year. It's, it's really kind of hard to nail down a lot of really solid numbers um, on a lot of this.
0: Got it. Do you know if these uh, two organizations that you've kind of worked with a little bit, have they had any success in getting some of these kids back?
2: A few have. I know that one of them has gotten kids out of Kurson area. And then early on uh, in the early months of the Ukraine war, Uh, One of the organizations that I had worked with, um, Atlas Global Aid, they had worked with a few other organized groups that uh, there was, I think, a couple of uh, uh, orphans up north, and they went up and got those kids out before the Russians were actually able to come down and and, uh, close the door on that area. Okay.
0: And uh, for anybody that wants to, like, support these groups in any way, how can they do that, if you have an answer?
2: I think the best way is always you can reach out to myself. Uh, my email is projectleaflet at gmail.com. Um, I've got a few individuals that work specifically with their uh, point of contacts. And if you're looking to work with them or have people that can help, uh, you know, it's always worth putting in contact.
0: Okay, perfect. Jets, um, we got any final comments we want to make?
1: No. Yeah. Go ahead.
2: We'll I've
1: been talking a lot go for it oh, oh thanks man but real quick to you um, i'm actually this is actually great i was unaware of your post about that i actually just kind of got put on the project leaflet when i when i, I uh you know uh brodie asked me to you know come on the podcast again and, and i've been flipping through your stuff it's great awesome stuff um i'm i'm like amazed that i you weren't on my radar before but i'm glad that i that you are now but i'm it's really great that you're covering you know the kidnapping ukrainian children um, because that that's a huge thing. So on Twitter, I'm also a bit active on Twitter. There's a lot of movement on there, and the suppression is is nil to none when it comes to suppressing that topic. Um, so I, if I could, I'll try and find because I've been in spaces where people have talked extensively about this this subject. Um, and it, you're right, it's not getting the coverage that it needs to get. Um, so if I hopefully if I can, I'm, I'm DMing some people right now to see if I can uh, get some people in contact with you to you know give you some more information on that because that is something that I have noticed that I haven't seen almost at all on any meta platform so but on twitter though it is very there is a lot of people who are doing some good work on that uh on on that subject because thousands of ukrainian children are being taken um, yeah
2: I, I think that's a huge topic you know like two two of the big things that are probably going to be focused on is the child abduction and the post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injury that's going to be focused on uh, after this after this war
1: yeah exactly Definitely. So I hopefully I'll be able to get some people in contact with you. That's the that's the hope. Um, I'm hoping for some answers quick from some of these people. But I'm actually glad you mentioned that because I you know I almost never hear that mentioned. And arguably myself, uh, I have to admit that I haven't. I have not necessarily refrained, but I haven't covered it in the past as well, either. But it is something that's very important because thousands of you, you know these these children are being taken from their homes. Sometimes even told that their parents are dead when they're not. Right. And, you know, a lot of times I've heard stories and things like um, the Ukrainian mothers are trying to go into Russia to try and get their kids. They're either being blocked or they're telling them their kids aren't here, but they they have proof that their kids are. Um, and all the while, these kids are being told that their parents are dead while they're actively trying to find them. So thank you for highlighting this subject.
2: Yeah, it definitely needs to be, I think, highlighted more. And it, it's I, that's why I thought it was so unfortunate that, you know, we get thousands of views on some of our posts, um, especially when we do collaborative posts. And you know, you all of a sudden you do a post that is something that highlights a global issue and something that's happening in Ukrainian families, and we only get like a hundred likes on it. It it it's, it's just obviously something in the grain screen was like, well, that's weird. Why didn't this post get that much traction?
0: Yeah, it's a little frustrating.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: I, I notice when I say
1: things like Russia, certain keywords. That's why I say "Are you" with with a period at the end of you know abbreviation sometimes. Um or or Ukr for Ukraine sometimes. Yeah, um, yeah. I tried to step away from doing that because I understand some people get confused. Um, and my page being being kind of from the civilian aspect of my page, um, is supposed to be as digest easily digestible as possible. So using uh abbreviations that may seem you know commonplace to you know the three of us may not be, seem commonplace to the you know the mom at home you know watching her kid trying to figure out what's going on in Ukraine. So,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah, you know, and I I do actually uh, have a list of like acronyms and like commonly used military terms that I do need to be better with updating. Like, I do need to put more time into that. But if you guys want, I could actually add you onto that. It's just a Google Doc and -hmm. you could kind of like share that on your link tree or whatever you want. And that way it could be an easy, yeah, absolutely for our viewers.
1: Yeah, I I I I got to make a
0: link tree in the first place. Okay, yeah, and i I uh, would appreciate the help updating that as well. I need to put more time into it.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. I'd definitely be down to. And you, I have noticed though that you are like the oh, I'm pretty sure the only one who has that like a glossary of you know commonly used phrases and acronyms. So and th- that has helped in handy. I have steered a good amount of people towards that as well. Yeah, oh, yeah. Sure I I you,
0: but... Yeah, I tend to use a lot of uh, acronyms, you know, especially uh, coming from the military. So it's nice to have. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> a little directory for people to use. I think
1: a good way to close, though, uh, favorite acronym from the force. Mine is WISRO. What is it?
0: Um,
1: Wiz
0: What
1: is that? It's uh, it's uh, relates to reconstitution and replenishment operations and stuff like that. I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to remember the exact okay. uh, name, but um, but it's, it's a close second though, would be um. What's the um and I'm losing it now, but but you guys can go. I'm sorry, I'm 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 losing it a bit.
0: BAMSIS, um, dude. Gotta be BAMSIS. Always. Which one is that? Uh that is like the Marine Corps um like planning acronym for operations like begin planning, uh, arrange recon, make recon. Uh damn it. What is the okay. see?
1: Yeah, and there's so many of them too. There's so many acronyms to get them all in your head and remember them.
0: I know, and I'm like so far removed
2: now, man. I've been out for like five years, so I really gotta freshen up on my. I had one that always cracked me up was when I was in when I was a young kid in Iraq. I had a a guy working on our striker, and he kept cussing about Bob, and <laughs> I was like, "Who the fuck is this Bob guy?" And like, what is going on? And he likes and i finally asked him and he looks up at me and he's like it's the bright orange ball in the sky you dumbass and are <laughs> talking about the sun and i was like oh my god and uh i just like now just like i always remember that like fucking bob man he's too goddamn hot <laughs> and, like it cracks <laughs> me up you just make acronyms about everything that you could make something about but yeah, I know that the, the armed forces
1: make acronyms. That's one thing when I've been so, the more and more I learn about uh the force and things like that. And, and you know, I've been trying to delve into manuals and things like that. I mean, they're so acronym written, but it, it kind of helps though. I kind of see why they help. do it. Yeah, yeah it I see why they, all they all do it very quickly. Yeah, exactly. You get the gist of things. I think the all time my all time favorite one though has to be FUBAR, even though that's not necessarily used to describe anything actual, bar. Than, but yeah. FUBAR is the all time I think that's the all you know that the kind of takes the king the king seat on that one
0: yeah i looked at my german dictionary and i couldn't find that in there <laughs> fucking dude the marine corps is horrible with acronyms man we have a german dictionary that's great fuck, yeah we have this uh system it's like a unmanned like ground vehicle system that basically they'll mount like um missile on like i think they do tomahawks now and then they do like anti-ship missiles and the fucking acronym for this thing is ridiculous it's like rogue fires or something like that and that's the entire acronym like but
1: it like, actually cool. means something which is crazy yeah like why, yeah. <laughs> why can't you
0: just call it like, a, like a, i don't know three word acronym or something it's ridiculous Mm-hmm. I mean, they're pretty good, though. I, one thing I got to give the force,
1: you know, the credit with is is creating acronyms that not only have to do with the like the name itself, like what the acronym spells out has to do with the weapon system or the initiative or the program that they're doing. But then it has, it also spells out like like they'll, they'll find the words to describe the initiative, the program or the weapon system and make that acronym. And then on top of that, make it sound cool. I mean I wonder if they got to have a whole acronym department I assume. Yeah,
0: you, I was just thinking <laughs> the same thing. There's got to be like some classified acronym agency or something.
1: Something like that.
0: Hey, well boys, uh before we close this out, let's uh get some get some ways to find you guys and support you guys. John, I'll, I'll let you go first.
1: Oh, definitely. I'm on uh, I'm on all platforms. Um I even uh facebook uh if you look up my name uh phone name, john and larry on facebook you can find me on there my main platform is instagram i'm on twitter as well i'm hopefully trying to get a sub stack moving everything with the same name defense bulletin thank you for having me on
0: yeah thanks for being here man uh chris what are some ways that people can find you and, and support the work you're doing and just keep locked into your stuff
2: Yeah, most of, uh, I'm, I'm found pretty easily on Instagram. Um, project leaflet is my Instagram and, uh, my personal is of blood and steel, but if you follow project leaflet, that'll kind of take you to everything else that we do, our telegram and, um, our other works and efforts. And, you know, following that, giving us a subscription or a sub on our Instagram is really helpful. It puts us back into, uh, you know, the, the $2 helps put us into conflict areas to go back into the war and, Capture some more documentation and um really just a share or uh, picking up a t-shirt from us to share the name. you know that that's a big thing. Just share our work. let us let the world know what we're doing.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you guys both for being here. I actually had a lot of fun doing this.
2: This may be like my favorite war report that I've done so far.
1: This was a fun one,
2: yeah, thank you, guys. I know your time's important. and um, man, I, I love talking with people and I love talking on podcasts and uh, you know, this is this is a good one. I think this was a lot of fun. Yeah, well, Thank I know you. you're Definitely. you're sweating
0: your ass off out there in a trailer in West Texas, so <laughs> I appreciate you suffering a little bit. That's uh, yeah, okay. To be with us, okay, gents. Well, uh, yeah, this is fun. Thank you again for being here. I'll I'll catch you guys soon. We'll have to do this again. Definitely. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Everybody, thank you again for listening to that episode. Uh, it was great to have both John and Chris on. I really appreciate uh, both our input, and I hope you guys do um, as well. You know, I really love doing these episodes, and it's good to sit down and, and talk about what's been going on and kind of give you guys uh, just a, a brief, you know, overhead view of, of what's been happening these, these past couple months. Thank you for supporting this podcast in general. It really means a lot to me. You could find this podcast on your favorite apps: Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. Wherever you listen, we're there. You could find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That's all one word. We're also on Threads at the same handle, and you could find us on Telegram at Analyze and Educate. And please consider supporting us again on Patreon.com/AnalyzeEducate or at ko ko-fi, ficom slash analyze, educate. That is all I have for you guys right now. I will see you again with a news episode in the beginning of next week.